All right, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33. I don't know where you are at in your Bible reading this year. I got stalled out in mine. I got stalled out here in Exodus 33 and 34. This is, has long been one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I've never had an opportunity to preach on it before. And when I'm preaching on Wednesday nights, it's easy. I'm just preaching through 2 Timothy. I just go to the next verses. When Pastor Randall's out of town, I've got to just kind of do a one-off thing. Then it's like, what if you got the whole Bible, what do you preach? Well, you preach what burns in your heart. And the Lord has burnt this in my heart this week. And I hope that somehow he speaks to you through his word today. Um, yeah. So let's just read Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I'm going to stop here and just note that he just told Abraham he's done with the nation of Israel. He said, I'm going to give this to your children. This is after they've worshipped the, the uh, golden calf that they've created. And just to give you some context, uh, verse 3, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, far off from the camp. By the way, this is before the actual uh, tabernacle it was built. This is another tent, sort of like a pre-tabernacle. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. It's kind of weird because they would rise up, they'd stand up, go to the door, and then they would fall on their face. That's what worship is, or they fall on their face. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the word that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain." So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. 
Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of a sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month Abib you came out, of, out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear, appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord, forty days and forty nights. He neither, he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with him. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again, until he went in to speak with him. I just want to make some observations here on chapters 33 and 34. And I'm just going to make these observations and give a little, make, give a little bit of comment where it's applicable. But I want you to understand, before I give these observations, 
I want you to think for a second about Moses here. And he's going into the presence of God. And he's going there and he sees his glory and he's speaking to him face to face. And I want you to think of the absurdity of going into the presence of God and acting as if you have no sin. Think of that absurdity. But we do this. We do this. We act as if we have no sin, don't we? I mean, we know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's wonderful, isn't it? It's good to know that. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that even though you've been justified, even though you're being sanctified, even though God's doing this work in your life and he's making you and conforming you into the image of Christ, you still sin. We don't want to ever give the impression that we're sinless. We don't want to give it to anyone else. And we want to be very careful that when we approach God, that we don't come in self-righteousness. Because he is glorious. And he doesn't tolerate lies. (laughs) He just doesn't. And it's foolish. You think you're fooling God? Right? I mean, you can come to church on Sunday, and I think we all do this. Every one of us does this. Where we put forward a face. This is who I am. But oftentimes that thing we put out there, whatever that is, is not reality. And what God wants is reality. He will honor that reality of someone who says, and Jesus, many times in the Gospels, points this out. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Who goes out justified? The one who says, not the one who says, thank you, God, that you didn't make me like that guy or that girl. But Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, all the New New Testament over and over again in the Gospels, says that he is the light. He is the light. And we're invited in the Word of God to do what? To walk in the light. What does light do? It exposes everything. When you come into the presence of God, you're coming into the light. And He exposes everything. Now if you act like you're, you're not fooling Him, He knows. that There's no reality there. It's fake. It's phony. It's hypocritical to act as if we have no sin. We all violate the laws of God in one way or the other. So I want to say all that by way as we introduce this. Because look, he says at one point, he says, Lord, show me your glory. What is the glory of God? There's this created light that surrounds the throne room of God. And they even saw it back here in the book of Exodus. would lead them. And they would see this cloud descend when he's out there at the tabernacle. That light, God is glorious and he's light. And it's his nature to expose things. So we'd be far better off to come before God 
and say, oh God, I'm a wicked sinner and mean it. Not just theologically. Not just charting it up to like total depravity and saying, yeah, I can check that box. I believe that. I'm talking about owning it. And saying, I'm a sinner. That's the only way you can approach God in reality. We'll get into this as we go. So some observations. The first, our sin should drive us to God in desperation. There's a desperation with Moses, and he's mostly desperate because back in 32, they've made this false god, and God has sent a plague among the people of Israel. There's a desperation. There's a certain desperation when you're watching people die around you. And so he is desperate before God And he's so desperate that in 32, verses 31 and 32, if you go back there, you see what he says. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. He's saying, I would rather die than to watch these people die for their sin. So in a way here, you've got like a foreshadowing of what Christ is. Ultimately, that's what we need. We do need a substitute. He was offering himself to do that, but he wasn't the one. He was just a foreshadowing, so he he couldn't do that. But he is foreshadowing Christ. He was willing to die for the people of God, and he was desperate. That's desperation. When's the last time you were desperate over the sins of your own sins? When was the last time you were desperate over the sins of your children? Remember the book of Job? Right? He offered sacrifices for his children because he said, I don't know whether or not they're off on their own. They may, they may or may not be obeying God. If they're sinning, that I'm offering sacrifices for their sin. Why? He was desperate for his children and their sin, potential sin. And we also see that God's willingness to wipe them out was a reason for that desperation because he's a holy God. It's easy to sing about that on Sunday morning, how holy God is, but what are we saying? He is holy, and he's a God who hates sin. So God is willing to wipe them out in his wrath. 32 verse 35, the Lord sent the plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. In 33.3, God says, I will not go with you because if I go with you, I'll consume you because you're stiff-necked, you're stiff-hearted, and I'm holy. I will wipe you out. So we ought to have some desperation. And what I would urge you, you know, our church, as members are concerned, we're a Reformed church, Reformed doctrine. But I'm afraid that when it comes to the Reformed world right now, there's not much desperation over sin. I'm talking about the Reformed world. There's not much desperation over sin. In fact, there's a lot of compromise with it. And we'll look the other way on it because we can find ways to do it theologically. And while it's true, all those theological things are true, it does not change the fact that God is holy and he calls us to be holy. Now, your only hope... (laughs) My only hope, our only hope, is grace. 
And if you look at what the text is saying here, that's Moses' only hope. If you go down to verses 7 to 13 in chapter 33, you see it. So God is sought by those he gives grace to. The only people who truly seek God are the ones that he gives grace to. Why? Because if he doesn't do a work in your life and give you grace, you're going to continue on in your sin. You're going to be happy to be there. But if he gives grace, you will not be content with that. And that's why you get this desperation. So if you look at uh, verses 7 through 13, you see it. Such a seeker will not rest until he finds God. In chapter 33, um, I don't have, yeah, there it is, verse 7. He talks about people who are seeking God. It talks there in the text about those who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. And the word sought in the Hebrew is talking about uh, its intention is that the object will actually be found. It's a lot of people talk about seeking God, but they're not really looking for him. <laughs> and when they find him, they, they turn around and go the other way. But when God gives grace to somebody, they want to know God, and they will not be denied. <laughs> they will continue to go after God until they find him. Why? Because God's doing work. God's bringing them. And when God decides he's going to bring you, a team of wild horses will not stop you. You're coming. Whether you want it or not, you're coming to God. So he will not rest until he finds God. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The only one who does that is someone who has found grace. By the way, we see this guy Joshua, an early introduction to Joshua in chapter 33, verse 11. After Moses is done talking to God as a friend to a friend, the man speaks to his friend. Joshua is like, uh-uh, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here. I want that. Do you want that? Do you want, do you want to walk with God? Or do you love your sin? I'm talking to you as Christian people. Do you want to walk with God or would you rather hold on to your sin that's justified? You know, I can declare that okay with God. I'm going to hold on to that. After all, I'll still be saved. It's still okay. I'll persevere to the end. How do you know that? With that kind of attitude, you've got to question that. What are you doing? Do you want to know him? John chapter 15, Jesus speaks of this reality of God of abiding in him, remaining in him. And he says, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Are you seeing fruit in your life as a Christian? That's reality. That's reality with God. You can be a Christian and just be fruitless, but know this, there's a warning. Cut off and cast into the fire in John 15 if you're fruitless. But the reality, the person who's real with God, it says there in John 15, he will ask and he will receive. Now I'm not talking Kenneth Copeland stuff here, but what I'm talking about is the reality is your relationship is so real with God that not only are you talking to him and he's talking to you through the word, 
but you're asking him for stuff and he's answering immediately. That's what John 15 is talking about in that section. You ask, I'll give it. Have you had, when was the last time you were real with God? When was the last time you, could, you were so close to God that you could just cry out to him and say, oh God, I need this thing. And like before you're even done praying the prayer, he gives it. That's reality with God. Do you have that? If you don't have that, you may not have anything. Because that's reality. That's the relationship. This thing is real, is what I'm trying to get across. This relationship is real. And you're not dealing with somebody like me and, or somebody like you. You're dealing with God. So you might as well be honest before him because he knows everything. The text says it several times here. I've given you favor. God says to him, I've given you favor. Moses says, well, if you've given me favor, then go with us. I can't go without your presence. So he's received grace. Favor is another word for grace. You deserve hell. But if you're in Christ, you've di- Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead, you repented and placed your faith in Christ, you've received grace. Praise God, you've gotten that favor from God, and you can go to him and experience that. But your, your sin is breaking fellowship with him. Now you say, well, I just got to get rid of that sin. Good luck with that. You're always going to need grace. You're always going to need the gospel. So when you go to him, don't go to him giving him your list of things that you've done for him in the last week. Because that's not how you deal with sin. You repent of sin. You don't try to justify it. And what you do instead is you go, I am a sinner. I I have rebelled against your law. And listen to me. On your best days, when you're doing everything right, you get up in the morning, you read the Word, you work on your memory verse, you pray, you, you go through your day, you try to obey the Word of God, and you're doing everything you think in your little checklist that's right. You still miss the mark. There's still things you sin about. You never get beyond this, is what I'm saying. And you always go to Him saying, with humility, saying, I'm a sinner. Such a seeker that is there on the basis of grace will communicate with God. It's like face-to-face here, a man with a friend. It's different for us now because we have the Word of God. He speaks to us through the Word of God. Not past tense, he speaks to us now through the Word of God. Yes, it was given in the past, but it's a living Word. And it's still alive and it still speaks to us. Is God speaking to you like this? Is he speaking to you daily through his word? Are you speaking to him in prayer? Moses' relationship with God was very unique. You don't see other prophets ever being spoken of this way. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom God knew face to face. 
He he only had it because of grace. In the Reformed world, I think we're abusing grace. I think a lot of times we're just banking on it and we're not looking what the Scriptures say about grace. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. If the grace that you've received is allowing you to stay in your sin, that's not grace. There will be holiness developing in your life. There will be sanctification. I'm not talking sinless perfection, but I am talking a change in direction that has you going towards Christ and not away from Him. The grace of God will teach us something. It will teach us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now Moses wants to know the ways of God based upon grace because in verse 13... He says, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, grace, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. He says, I've got grace, but I want more grace. I want more. That's the heartbeat of a believer. He says, I want to know your ways. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Moses recognizes, he says, God, I've received favor but I don't like my way. I want your way. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Think about the ways. The Bible says, consider your ways. Think about the way that you're traveling through this life. Think about what you're doing. Is it real before God and men? Or is it fake? If it's fake, if it's phony, it's hypocritical. Repent of that. Repent of that. So that you will know God. Boy, what a simple concept. We kind of take it for granted. What does it mean to know God? What are you saying? You're saying a mouthful. First Samuel 2, verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. First Samuel 3, verse 7, says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. That's why he didn't have the word of God. He didn't have any word spoken to him. God's speaking to Moses. He even used Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25. Listen to this as a warning. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not, that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him and laid waste his habitation. So that's talking about pagan nations, but there's times when even the covenant people of God do stupid things. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22, My people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. 
We all are there. We're all there. So what does Moses insist on in verses 14 and 15? He insists on God's presence. He says, God, if you will not come with me, then I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to go into the promised land if you're not going to go with me. He says, I want to see you. He cries out to him there. I want to see your glory. According to Exodus 19.21, seeing it could mean death. Even with the prophets, there are times when they're aware of God's presence. Elisha, in 1 Kings 19, verse 13, before he would go out to meet with God, he took his prophet's mantle and he would cover his face with it before he would go out to see him because he didn't want to die. A.W. Tozer said this, the world is perishing for lack of the knowledge of God and the church is famishing for want of his presence. This world does not know God increasingly that way and meanwhile the church is starving to death because his presence isn't there. Largely because we, treat, we, we play this game with him where we're not real with him. Now in chapter 33, from verse 18 all the way down to chapter 34, verse 35, what you see, chapter 34, verse 35, what you see is that those who receive grace see his glory. Those who receive grace are satisfied with nothing less because chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. They want nothing less than that, than to see God, to know him. Do you have that hunger? Are you more interested in your business? Do you have that hunger? Or are you more interested in your lusts? Do you have that hunger? Do you cherish your sins too much? Do you want God? Do you want to know Him as well as you possibly can? Those who receive grace really should not be satisfied with anything less. And this glory consists in knowing who God is. We've seen it through the text already, but verse 6 of chapter 34 the Lord says, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And here's how he does it in verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. Talk about two things that seem to be contradictory. He's saying, I forgive sins abundantly and I pour out judgment to the third and fourth generation. So explain that, preacher. Wrap your mind around it. He's both. He's a God of love and a God of wrath. You approach him carefully. And you approach him his way. His way is always grace. His way is always grace. It consists in knowing who God is. It consists, as we see in uh, verses 10 through 28, in keeping covenant. Because he talks about these various things, it's through that section, idolatry is singled out. Sabbath breaking is singled out. The Ten Commandments are reinscribed in chapter 34, verse 28. And I'll just say it. There's no ongoing relationship with God without obedience. You cannot have it. 
Jesus said it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Those who receive grace see his glory. And seeing his glory will change someone. They'll they'll be changed. There's none of this idea that you can just sort of experience the grace of God and know God and just be like everybody else. That does not exist. It did not exist for Moses. He went up and he met with God. And as a result of being with God and communicating with him, his face shone. It was radiating light. <laughs> he had to cover his face with a veil at one point. But then whenever he went back to meet with God again, his face was on fire. Earlier in the text, in 33, you remember when he was walking out to go meet with God? What the people did? The men, walked, they walked to the door of their tent watching him go. They're watching him go. And as, they're go, as he's going to meet with God, they realize the solemnity of his meeting with God. And they worship. They fall on their faces and they worship. Moses, our leader, is going to meet with God. We better pray that God will have mercy. I don't know what you think about our pastor. I suppose you could criticize him about a lot of stuff. One thing you cannot criticize him about is that he loves the Lord passionately. And there's days when I come here during the day and I see him in his office praying. Or he's got the door closed I know he's praying. I don't knock on the door. I don't, it doesn't matter what I got going on. I leave him alone. Why? In a similar way, I just want him to meet with God. So when he comes here, he's got something to say. We have enough preachers in this state and in this country and in this world that get in a pulpit like this and they got nothing. They've got nothing to say. And the reason why our pastor has something to say is because of the time that he spends with God. And what that ought to do for us, oh, don't do this. Whatever you do, don't say, oh, that's good for our pastor. I go to a church where I got a pastor like that. Yay, pastor. What I'm saying is, follow him. Follow that example. Be with God. Pursue him. I'm going to shorten this whole thing in a hurry. How do we get there? How do we see the glory of God, I wonder? I wonder if there's a way. I mean, that was Old Testament. That was tabernacle. We don't have that anymore. I mean, how could we do that? Is there a way? Hear the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to see the glory of God? Look to Jesus. Go to the book of John. We're there on Sunday mornings usually. Go to the book of John. See Christ. Go to any of the Gospels. 
see Christ there at everything he taught. You want to see the glory of God? You want to have that mountaintop experience? Read the Gospels. That's where the glory of Christ, the glory of God is, is in him. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The God who is at the Father's side, who is that? That's Jesus. You can't see God the Father face to face. But when you see Jesus, you see God. You want to see God? Camp out in the New Testament. Camp out. And you'll even see him in the Old Testament. You'll see him in foreshadowings and types. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that, you may, that they may know you. Remember, Moses wanted to know God. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's all in Christ. All of this in Exodus 33 and 34 is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. So run to him. Listen, there are some of you here that have been visiting, whatever. I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know. There are people here today visiting. I don't know where you're at. I am not God. I, can, I don't. There's no signs blinking over your head. This guy's elect or whatever. I don't have any of that. No benefits of that. God knows. You know where you stand. I don't. So I say this to you, to everyone in the room. Listen, if you have not repented and placed your faith in Christ, what in the world are you waiting for? Run to Him. You say, I'm a sinner. Good. Join the crowd. Everybody here is. Now there's not one person in this room. Not one. That's not. That doesn't have their issues and rebellions against God. Run to him now. You don't know how long you have. We could be doing your funeral tomorrow. That's reality. We could be doing your funeral tomorrow or the day after. You don't have time. Time is the one thing you don't have. No guarantee of it. Run to him. Go to Christ. See him in his glory. See him as the God that he is, the one Listen, you don't love God? You hate Him? Why? He died. He laid down His life and He died for sinners like me, like you. He died. The Son of God, this only one who could never be accused of anything, was accused of crimes He didn't commit and He died. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. Where else do you think you're going to go? If you don't go to him, you have zero. You have nothing. You have less than nothing if that's possible. You must run to him. You must run to him. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you in your presence and we recognize that you are the holy God. Forgive us for thinking that we can fool you. Forgive us for thinking that we can come into the presence of the one who is nothing but glory and light and act as if we have no sin and you must look at us and say, what in the world is going on here? 
Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our lust, for attention from men. Uh, Lord, forgive us for being so prideful that we want to set an idol up that's just something we think that people will, will be fooled by. Lord, forgive us and forgive us for thinking that we can fool you. Oh God, have mercy on us sinners. And Lord, I pray that for those who've never pretended to know you, that they would see that they have no other hope and that they would want to know something of your glory and the reality of who you are. I pray they find it in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.